It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 59. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. 47th Avenue Farms' Laura Masterson started her farm on a double lot in a residential neighborhood of Portland, Oregon, 20 years ago. The farm expanded to many different plots of land and then consolidated, and now Laura farms about 20 acres of vegetables on land on two main parcels in the Portland suburbs, providing year-round CSA to over 200 families and produce to restaurants in the Portland metro area. Laura's commitment to the triple bottom line is apparent as we talk about Laura's work in government and with nonprofit organizations, her plantings of beneficial insect habitat on her farm, her weed control strategies, and record keeping's role on her farm for making management decisions. 47th Avenue Farm was one of the first in the Portland area to move away from the internship labor model, providing full-time, year-round employment opportunities. And Laura goes in-depth in this episode about how she's worked with her farm manager to create an open and encouraging work environment. I think you're going to enjoy this episode just as much as I did recording it with Laura. But first, we're going to get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmers Web, small business software for farmers. Farmers Web allows you to streamline wholesale ordering and operations, making it easier to work with your buyers, reducing costs, and increasing your capacity. FarmersWeb.com. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be on. So glad that you could join us. It was it was a lot of fun to actually meet you out in Oregon. You know, I talked to a lot of a lot of guests on the show that I've that I've known for a long time, and then. Uh, this is kind of the first time I've actually had somebody on the show that like I just met a couple of weeks ago. So it's kind of cool to have a have a face and, and some context to it from the Oregon Small Farms Conference. Well, we really appreciated you coming out here and speaking at the conference. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. So, Laura, could we start off with just having you tell us about 47th Avenue Farm? Kind of give us the lay of the land. Sure. So um, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I started my farm 20 years ago uh, on a small double lot in southeast Portland um, in a very residential neighborhood right in the city. So it it looks a lot different now. We're at 50 acres with um, lots more CSA members and restaurant sales and all that. But Basically, I knew I wanted to start farming. I was doing some landscaping work, and, um, you know, I wasn't born into a family of farmers. I didn't have access to land. I didn't have tractors. I didn't even really have much experience to speak of, Um, but I went to the EcoFarm conference in, I don't know, the mid-90s and um, heard about this thing called CSA, and I thought, all right, well, this is a way that I could potentially get um, get started, um, farming. And so I basically just talked all my friends into it that summer. Um, I, we sat down around the kitchen table and I said, uh, there's this thing called CSA where, um, people pay the farmer and then they come get a box of food once a week. And I have this big garden and how about you guys kick in some money and I grow some stuff. And, um, so that first season, people would really just, they would come to my house and maybe it would be harvested or maybe not. I would just walk around the garden and pick some stuff for people, whatever they wanted. <laughs> so that's how we got started. Um, and then the second, third and fourth years, I expanded to various locations around the metro region. 
we farmed uh, out in Hillsborough, um, north to into Washington, Ridgefield, Washington, east to Gresham. And at one point, I don't know, six or seven years into it, I was farming seven or eight different properties in three counties. And that, as you can imagine, was didn't totally feel sustainable. Um, but it, it was really what allowed me to get started was all these leased pieces of ground. And it was a great experience. I feel like I learned a ton working on all those different, um, soil types, all those different people had different irrigation set setups. There was different infrastructure, but at some point I'm like, okay, I've learned a lot. And how do I do this more efficiently? So starting, um, uh, let's see about. I guess 10, I was probably 10 years into it. Uh, we started working with Zenger Farm, um, which some people may know is a great uh, farm education nonprofit in Portland. And we farmed um, their property while they kind of built their nonprofit and educational um, infrastructure. And then we moved on to another um, public private partnership where I leased, where we currently still are. I leased some land from the city of Lake Oswego. Um, and we run their CSA program for them there. So that those two pieces of property were kind of, how do I consolidate? How do I mark, make this run a little more efficiently? And um, that was, yeah, that helped a lot. I think that we took a big step forward. At that point, we were farming probably uh, 12, maybe a little over 12 acres and um, kind of settled into a nice rhythm there for a few years until... Um, we had a little uh, scare with the city of Lake Oswego where they just, not a scare, but they decided uh, in their master plan that maybe they didn't want farming. They wanted to do sports fields there. So that uh, kind of pushed me to really look for property. At that point, I was in a position where I could buy some farm property and we purchased um, about eight years ago, we purchased our Grand Island property, which is 45 minutes an hour south of town and um, we have 38 acres there that we're uh, bringing into production and that is now we're still at, we're still at the Lake Oswego property so we have 50 acres total that we're growing on um, that that in the end worked out fine um, they decided they wanted to keep the farm but it's you know it's nice still to have a couple of pieces of property I think we the soils are different. We can grow different stuff in different places. It's nice to still have a foothold in town, um, but then have kind of all of the, well, I don't know, opportunities that are um, afforded to us by being out of town and having a little more space and being able to do cover crops. And the horses are down there at the Grand Island Farm. So that's kind of the lay of the land and a little bit of history of the farm. Farming all of those different parcels in in and around Portland, I can't imagine a harder way to get started in farming. Yes, that in hindsight is true, but in the moment, it was my only option. So I just felt really lucky that I had any options, I guess. Um, I, 20 years ago, it was a very different landscape in Portland. I feel like there just weren't the opportunities that there are now. We have so many farm education programs and um i mean not just teaching kids about farming but actually teaching young farmers the skills that they need um uh 
yeah, there's classes at all sorts of different levels. There's programs like the iFarm program run by Friends of Family Farmers that tries to match people who have land with people who need land. The infrastructure available now to young farmers, I think, is it's amazing and it and it helps a lot. But at that point in time, there just wasn't much out there. So I just kind of bootstrapped it however I however I could. And like I said, there were some I definitely learned a lot. There were some great things about leasing so many different pieces of property. I mean, when I got to the Grand Island farm, I knew exactly how I wanted to set up my irrigation system and I knew exactly how what my bed spacing was gonna be. So I I think if I had started on a piece of property in 1996, I would have, anyway, there, in some ways that, that's hard because you install all this infrastructure based on what you know. And then 20 years later, is it kind of hard to change? Maybe. Uh, yeah, it is. I've, I've worked with farms that have done that and it's not an easy transition to make when you're trying to switch over everything. So I think there's, there's a, there's a notion that when one starts farming, one has to have your own piece of property. And I, I spend a lot of time advocating for leasing. It's really, I mean, you don't have the land security and there are some downfalls with that, but there's also huge opportunities to, to learn and experiment and move on if you need to. So I I think for me, at least it was the only way to get started. And I learned a ton. Well, and I know that, 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 land access and land and farmland preservation issues are things that you've worked on a lot. Are there things that you've found in lease agreements that are particularly beneficial or situations that work better than others? My interest in in access to farmland and land use has been more around how to protect farmland in perpetuity. Um, I don't know how much you know about Oregon, but we have some really strong land use laws here, including our urban growth boundaries. And those have helped tremendously limit development. I think uh, what I saw farming for the first 10 years kind of well inside the urban growth boundary, actually in the city, and also right on the edge of the urban growth boundary was that uh, the land use laws we had in place didn't feel like enough to me. It was really challenging. there was a lot of speculation still happening. There was a lot of uncertainty. People were not investing in farmland if it was on the edge because part of the family was hoping that it would come in and they could they could sell it for a million dollars. And but the other part of the family still wanted to keep farming, but they couldn't invest in it. So anyway, there were just um, still challenges and problems around that. I think, um, and then there was also just if we want to keep growing food within striking distance of our cities where all the people are how do we encourage that kind of farming uh close in to the urban centers so that that recognition or kind of what i saw as i was farming on the urban fringe that um that was sort of how i got started on my advocacy, I think, because I looked around when I saw these problems and I thought, you know, who's working on this, right? My nonprofit experience was with more environmental groups. And when there was a problem, there was always somebody to turn to kind of. Um, And when I looked around for who was working on these issues, I just didn't see anybody who was really speaking with my voice, like the small farm, the organic farmer, who's doing that advocacy work. And 
that person or that group wasn't really there at that point. Can you tell us a little bit about the efforts you've made and the groups that you've worked with in that regard? Sure. My first foray into advocacy around farming was really with our local soil and water conservation district. So I don't know how many people out there know about about the soil and water conservation districts. They were started after the Dust Bowl, and they were really the local arm of the kind of federal effort to prevent another Dust Bowl from happening. So how do we take care of this amazing resource that we have, uh, maintain the soil, maintain good water quality? And they're really farmer-focused historically. But when when I joined ours, it had been... It, it had, when I joined our soil and water conservation district, I was really the first voice of small farming on there. It was a lot of nursery folks, a lot of NRCS folks, and it just seemed like an opportunity for me at this great intersection of conservation, but also farming. So a friend of mine was on the board and he talked me into it. And I uh, was initially appointed by the board and then I was elected. And so it's sort of funny to say, but I have, I have been an elected official for the last 10 years and (laughs) I uh, really have enjoyed being on the board. We've gone through a lot of transitions and uh, done a lot of, but we've also done a lot of great work. We're a district that has urban and suburban and rural constituents. And I think from I feel like if I hadn't been on the board, it would have been easy for a lot of resources to go into the urban areas because people are organized. The problems are already identified and it's there's a the need is is huge. And what I feel like I was able to do was advocate for small farms in rural areas. What programs do we need? What programs would help? Uh, We have done amazing work around riparian buffers going in and doing restoration and replanting for farmers so that they they can reap the benefits of those riparian buffers, but we help defray the cost of them. And the other thing I'm really proud of having done there is uh, helped start a farm incubator program, a farm business incubator program called the Headwaters Program. And that I think that was that came out of some of our conversations about what's the next generation of farmers? You know, where are they? How do we train them? What's miss? Where are the missing links? And when I started, there were a lot of farm internships available, and then people were who wanted to start their own farm, there was sort of this big gap. How do you get the experience you need to go from intern to buying your own farm? And I think, you know, the extension service covers a lot of kind of technical training, but the farm business incubator idea just seemed like something that would really help bridge that gap from worker on a farm to, I have an idea, I think I want to start a business, where do I try it out? And and that's what we're doing there, which I'm super excited about, is offering opportunities for folks to start a business, grow a business, and then launch. Well, and I think with the with the model that you're talking about with with not jumping in and buying land as your first step, those farm incubator programs make a ton of sense. 
Right. They are, they, that when, when I looked at the landscape, when I thought about my own experience of trying to pull my farm together, learn all the skills, find access to land, and that just didn't feel like a repeatable event. Um, or if it's repeatable, it's not sustainable. So the incubator program fills some of those gaps in a way that I'm really excited about and hopefully will move us to is currently moving us towards the next generation of successful farmers. So Laura, I know that in addition to your work with the soil and water conservation district there and and your service on the board, you've been involved in some other boards of directors and, and policy groups and have, have done a lot of work in that area. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement in, in policy around organic farming and, and local agriculture? I just feel like this is such an important thing for organic farmers to engage in. I think when I saw issues at the local level, regional level, state level, one of the challenges was I felt like our voice is not being represented. And I know it does take time potentially away from the farm, but it just feels like such important work. I mean, we're a tiny demographic. All farmers in the U.S. are less than 2% of the population, and organic farmers are an even smaller fraction of that. But we have such an important voice in the future of food and agriculture, and especially where agriculture intersects with the environment. I just really feel like it's important where people can to engage. And I think I found opportunities to work on some of the issues that I'm really passionate, land use, I don't think everyone has to engage on every issue, but where farmers are passionate, I would love to see their voices raised more often. I feel like the Soil and Water Conservation District was a great place for me to get involved, but there's also opportunities with your local farmers market board, the Grange, um, National Coalition of Alternative to Pesticides, like land trust, whatever your issue is, I would encourage farmers. And I think my goal is to mentor the farmers who are working for me into some of those roles so that when the opportunity arises, when they need farmers to talk about an issue at the city council meeting or at the state legislature, we're really prepared with those people of my generation, but also the next generation who are willing to talk about those issues. There's so much energy around food and sustainable farming these days, but I don't necessarily see it translating into the policy arena. And that's something that feels really important to me if we're going to make the big strides that we need to make. There's a lot of changes coming in the next 10 years. A lot of things could shift on the political spectrum and we have a great opportunity to engage and we have an amazing voice with all of the organic farmers and perspectives. So to go back to talk a little bit more about, about your own farming situation, you're still living on that original piece of property there in the Woodstock neighborhood of Portland, Oregon, right? I am still living uh, where I started the farm on my double lot. And that's where we do one of our CSA pickups still. So our core group of customers is really here in Portland, um, both our CSA members and our a lot of our restaurant sales are really, even in 
uh, for people who know Portland, they'll, they know it's divided into quadrants and we are in the Southeast quadrant. And so that those are, those are kind of our peeps. They have really supported us over the last 20 years and will, will continue, I think, to be our, our major market. That said, one of the challenges for me is how do I fully build out our new property? And I think at some point I would like to be down there full time, really uh, focusing my energy on that property and just, you know, really trying to realize the full potential there. Because where you are there in the Woodstock neighborhood, I mean, you're you're not on the outskirts of Portland. You're you're in the thick of it. I mean, you're right next to Reed College, which, um, you know, where you graduated from. And and there's I've been in that area. There's a lot going on there. It's not like it's not like uh, it's not like you're on the edge of town. Nope. We are in the center of things. We are in the thick of things. And it, yeah, yeah. And I when I think back about starting the farm, I mean, it's just amazing that I um, anyway, that I that I thought I guess now lots of people are farming in in the urban center, and I feel like maybe I've set a good example for that. But it is it's dense urban Portland. The density is increasing all the time. I um, I appreciate the urban farming that's still happening here because I feel like we want to keep the food production as close as we possibly can to the urban center. And for me, some of the stuff I'm excited about as I continue farming and go into my uh, 20th year of farming is some of the stuff that we can do better at the Grand Island property. I mean, having the draft horses, that wouldn't really work too well here in town. <laughs> and uh, doing really extensive cover cropping, I don't know, that integrating more animals into our into our farming operation. Those are some of the things that I'm excited about. And those opportunities are really on a little bit bigger farm than we started on. And so now you're commuting on a daily basis to the to the farm in Lake Oswego, which is closer and, and then out to uh, out to Grand Island, which is which is a little further away. That is correct. I am commuting a lot. Um, we have a we have a great crew at the farm. We have a far, I have a farm manager who is managing the 12 acre uh, lusher farm property that's in Lake Oswego. So I am not there every day. And in the in the peak of the season, I am spending some spending some time down at the Grand Island property. So we have a little house there on the property. So I'm there maybe for three or four days a week and um, doing the tractor work and managing the irrigation. And I'm I'm really the main manager down on that property. So that's that's kind of the lots of people commute for their jobs. We don't usually think of farming as a commuter job, but it has always been that for me. So I think there's some trade-offs involved. One of the good things is that I get to listen to your podcast all the time and <laughs> I have a I have a subscription to Audible, which I really appreciate. And you know, the downside is that I'm not always at the farm seeing everything and managing it maybe with the kind of the the hands-on way that I would like to be. But hopefully that is not too far in our distant future. Well, just talking about the now and not being there in that in that very hands-on every moment of every day way, 
have you found tools or techniques that have helped you to do a better job of managing from a little bit of a distance and, and with a little bit more time in between your, your touches at the farm? So I, I think that one of the big opportunities for small farmers is to get better in that leadership and management role. I think, you know, that's one of the things I really appreciate about your your podcast, Chris, is this way that you kind of curate this whole body of knowledge that's out there in corporate America being used maybe for goals that we don't totally agree with. But there's some useful information out there about how to be a better leader, how to do better management, and how how do we get some of that into the the world of small farming? I, I think there's great technical information coming out of the universities um, that, yeah, there's lots of education around um, how to grow stuff better. But I think some of the big challenges for, at least for the farms that I know and the scale they are, is how do we manage people better? When you're the doer, it doesn't necessarily, those skills don't necessarily translate into the manager. And I have seen that as my farm has grown. And I have felt like I wasn't doing a very good job at it of it, or, you know, I just wasn't getting the results that I wanted. So part of that is trying to wade through and figure out what books and what skills are really relevant. And that can be challenging. Now I feel like there's some really interesting stuff coming out. I mean, you had a great interview with the guy who wrote the lean farming book, and that's been a real success story on our farm. I was reading some of that stuff about the Toyota way and Kaizen maybe five or six years ago and trying to get the crew to act on it or do stuff or really buy into it. And I just, it just never stuck, but here we are, you know, fast forward five years, different crew, new book. It's really the same ideas, but for whatever reason, it's, it's, it, it's really taken off for us on our farm. Literally my crew came to me and said, you have to read this great book. And uh, I, my job in that regard, I guess, is just to learn how to get out of the way and let them really do a good job. I think that this is one of the real challenges, I think, with any management situation. But I think you, you take it and heighten it when, when you have the situation where you're having to turn over large portions of responsibility to other people simply because of the distance that you are from the from the farm that you're ma- that you're managing at the top, you've got to have somebody who's there in the middle who's also managing, and it's it's really easy to to abrogate your responsibility in that situation. I know one of the one of the easiest one of the biggest mistakes that I made, one of the easiest mistakes that I think you make when you're when you're delegating responsibility is to is to end up just saying to somebody like, "Great, you you know you've got an idea, you want to do something, fine, run with it." And, and I know that, that some of the, the biggest stumbling blocks that I had as a manager were when I let somebody run with a project without giving them adequate oversight and boundaries. You know, here's the, here's the limitations on costs. Here's what this needs to look like. Let's touch base when we're, you know, when, when we're this far into that particular project that we're working on. Absolutely. So delegation is one of the great challenges. And I think you described one of the bookends, which is go for it and tell me how it works out. 
<laughs> and that can be a real challenge or cause big problems if you're not checking in in a timely fashion. I think the other bookend and then problem or thing people do, which is problematic, is the micromanaging. Right. I know how to I've done this thing. I know how to do it. Let me help you show you and micromanage you in a way that's not helpful either. So whatever one's tendency is, I think that's the challenge is to kind of move towards the middle and figure out how to give people enough responsibility and ownership, but then be checking in in a way that doesn't feel like micromanaging and is encouraging and also just leads to good results and outcomes. And I think you, you've you touched on this in, in various podcasts and some of the stuff you've written about. Really, to me, a big piece of that is self-knowledge. And I think one of the most important things for me to be a better manager is to be more self-aware. And it's just so easy to feel like you're telling, feel like you're explaining to people what you want them to do, feel like you're giving them ownership. But when I, I mean, five years ago, when I took a hard look at what results I was getting, it didn't matter what I thought I was doing. I mean, I was doing something wrong because I was not getting the results I wanted. And that that forced some serious soul searching for me uh, to really dig in and think about how do I do this better? What do I need to change in my management style and my leadership style that's going to get me the results that I want? And it's really easy, I think, to blame other people, blame the crew, you know, kids these days, they don't know how to work hard. That's something I hear from a lot of farmers who are hiring their first employees. And I really feel very strongly that I am, I don't know, it's trite, but true. I can only change myself. And if I'm not getting the results that I need, what do I need to do differently? Yeah, I always I always describe it when I'm doing presentations about management as the picnic problem. You know that that uh, in the computer world, most of the time when you call tech support, you're calling them because of of what tech support calls a picnic problem. The problem's in the chair, not in the computer. You know, and and in some ways that feels like a really a, a like a slight. You know, like well, shouldn't the problem be in the computer? But I think it's. It's so much it's so much more empowering to say, wow, the problem's in me. You know, I'm the one. If Microsoft Word is just a crappy program, then I can't do anything about that. But if it's a matter of learning how to use the program correctly, well, I can fix that. That's something that I've got control over. And I think the same thing's true when you're looking at that from any kind of a management perspective, whether it's, you know, people management or or financial management or whatever else. But to be able to say, you know, the only, like you said, the only thing I can change here is myself. And the only thing that I've got control over is what I do and how, how I act and how I react. And that's what really gives you the power to make change in your farming operation and get the results that you want. Absolutely. So I think I was able, I don't, one of the things I did with the crew last year, which was kind of fun, was, uh, I don't, do you know the Enneagram? It's kind of like the Myers-Briggs 
program. It's a little personality test. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. The Enneagram, it's called, and it's similar to the Myers-Briggs, but it's much less expensive and it's just kind of fun. And so as a team, we went through this and everybody did their personality type. And then we talked about these different personality types and they all come with strengths and they all come with challenges. And so it allowed us to talk about some of the challenges we were having as a team in a way that didn't feel personal, right? If you're, or I shouldn't say, if if one of my challenges is that I, so I'm a number nine, I'm a peacemaker, and I like it when everyone's getting along. So conflict is really challenging for me, and it's hard for me to tell people things that they don't want to hear. That's where a starting point is for me. It doesn't mean that I can't get better at it or I don't want to get better at it, but it's just let's acknowledge that we all kind of start in different places along these various spectrums. And it was really, I thought, helpful in order to identify those things. And then later in the season, maybe when things did get challenging, it was came up a few times in a way that really lightened the situation and we could use it with some humor and, Oh, I'm being a little bit like that. And this is something that I'm trying to get better at rather than allowing some of those conversations, which in the heat of the season can devolve into some really unhappy um, crew dynamics, using it as a way to sort of laying, excuse me, laying the groundwork in the beginning of the season so we have some context for maybe talking about some of these challenges that happen when you're working with a diverse group of people. I really like how you how you put that, that it gives you a way to talk about things that aren't talking about the people. You know, wow, it's really hard for me as a, as a, as a number nine to to sympathize with a number five. I'm just making that up. I'm not familiar with the Enneagram thing. But, you know, it, it becomes a lot it becomes less about, gee, I don't like you and I don't like what you're doing. And it becomes, like you said, more about talking about things and ideas. And I think that's so much more, well, Ken Blanchard talks about this in the One Minute Manager. He always says, you want to make sure you're talking about the work and not the person. Right. You know, and, and that that's what really makes it, it's what makes it, it makes us able to make corrections, whether it's retraining or reprimanding people without having it be, something that has to not, has to be a blow to somebody's self-esteem. Right. And I guess I would take it maybe even one step further, and that is how do you create a culture of continuous improvement? Because really, that's, that's, really, that is my life's work. I love farming, and farming's really important, but I'm also working on myself, and I have some quirks and I have some challenges and I don't just work on those, you know, after five o'clock when I come home, they are evident in my work on the farm. And I want to create a culture on the farm where everybody feels like this is, this is how we're all going to move forward. We have our foibles and we're working on them. And maybe, you know, your default is to be really detail oriented and, and that gets us into trouble. And maybe, you know, somebody else's challenge is not wanting to see any of the detail and kind of always blazing forward and not, 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 maybe somebody else's challenge is always blazing forward and forgetting to loop people in. And those are 
part of who we are, but as we all want to get better at our jobs, talking about some of those kinds of quirks is part of how we move forward. It isn't just about, can I drive the tractor in a straight line or did I record the harvest data, right? The challenges of different personalities is, it. I don't know, for me, I want to include that piece with my crew in the conversation so that we're all allowed to be whole people at work. So I'm really interested, Laura, in how you do this with both long-term and short-term employees. I know that one of the challenges that I always had as a manager of people on the farm was that the lion's share of my employees were going to be there for just the one summer. Do you have a long-term crew in addition to your farm manager or is it, are you making these kinds of investments in time and emotional energy and intellectual energy for somebody who's just going to be with you for four to six months? We have about 10 people who work with us in the summer. And I would say a little over half that stay at least for one additional season. One of my big goals is to increase staff retention on the farm because I feel like that's one of the most important things we can do to move the farm forward is to have that institutional memory retained. And no matter how much experience you have, your first season, especially if you have been farming somewhere else and you come to the Pacific Northwest and uh, if if I hire someone, even if they have a lot of experience somewhere else, they need to learn how to grow here and learn our system. And so at least the first year and sometimes the first two years are really laying the groundwork. And it seems to me after that is when you start to really be able to have people do amazing things at the farm and really take ownership and they have a basic knowledge of the systems and they're able to then really move forward and make some serious improvements on them. And so that's been a big goal of mine is to create those kinds of jobs where people want to stay, they're excited about staying, create the environment where people really feel like they're realizing their long-term potential and their professional goals. So my big investments are in people who are staying with us for at least a few years. And I think there are ways to get people on board who are just seasonal employees. I think we could do a better job of that. And I think as we um, as we kind of build out the system, what does it look like? What are our best practices? How do we introduce folks to this in a way that doesn't take a whole day to do sort of team building, but is interspersed as we're training people, as we're doing other stuff. There's a culture that I think we're starting to create on the farm where when you're weeding carrots all day with somebody, this is some of the stuff that you talk about. So those are the little ways I think it gets introduced. And then if we have somebody who's seasonal, who comes to work for us for a year, maybe goes back to school, I don't know, in a couple of years after they work at a few different places, maybe they come back to us with some different, maybe they come back to us with some different experiences. Well, I think it's, it is one of those funny dynamics, right? It, 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 it's almost that to, to get somebody 
who's going to stay long enough to warrant making the investment, you also have to make the investment before you know if they're going to be there for long enough to warrant making the investment. It's part of how you create that culture that says that we do value people and and we have a way of, of doing things and interacting with each other that is valuable and that you're going to want to be a part of in the long term. You can't just say, oh, we'll start doing that in your second year here. Right, which is what I think I started out doing because there's a some there's sometimes a sense of scarcity of time and resources and I don't want to invest in people if I don't know if they're going to stay. And for me, that has been a shift as much in attitude as anything else. I really feel like there are a million moments in the day to be investing in people, to be encouraging people, to be offering opportunities for folks. And I feel like it's been really interesting for me to shift personally and think about how to how to to take each moment where there is that opportunity and do it in a really open-hearted and compassionate way. And then if I only have five minutes, that's the time I take, but I've spent it. I haven't not done it because I didn't have an hour. And I think that's where I was maybe before. If I couldn't do it perfectly or if I couldn't do enough, I wasn't going to do it. And now what I'm really trying to do is use those five minutes as efficiently as possible and say, if we don't get through the conversation, hey, let's finish that tomorrow after this other meeting or when we have time at the other at the end of the week. But really just doing it in every moment when the opportunity arises instead of feeling like I have to do it perfect and there isn't time right now. I think it is one advantage we have in the farming world that it's a, we're working in a predominantly quiet environment. I mean, a lot of the work that we're doing uh, when, when we're with other people is not on the tractor. It's, you know, it's being, you can hold a conversation uh, while you're working and you're not sitting in a factory with earplugs in, you're not, uh, you know, you're not doing customer service. You actually do have that time to really create that relationship and take advantage of that five or 10 minutes that where the, where the interval does come up while you're bunching kale together to have that conversation. Right. I think that leads to an interesting conversation, which I had with the crew last year, which was about how much are we plugged in on the farm? And it was just ironic because I think a, oftentimes they were plugging into you and they were <laughs> <laughs> they were plugging into farming. And so I wanted to encourage that. But I also feel like part of what we have on the farm and part of what I love about farming is that quiet and is that opportunity, which is so different from where the rest of the world is heading. Uh, that opportunity to observe and think and see the architecture of the plant and see uh, deeply what's happening on the farm in a way that you can't do if you're plugged in. And so anyway, it was just, it was a really interesting um, conversation to have with the group. And I think initially there was a sense that I was going to take all their devices away and there was some resistance to that and that was not my intention ever but when we circled back around to actually have the conversation it they were very thoughtful about it and we we just set out some guidelines which you know five years ago I wasn't even thinking about but when do we want to 
have the iPod and the earbuds in on the farm. If you're going to be on the BCS for eight hours, then probably you do want to have some earbuds in. But if you're working alongside somebody and if you need to be, if you're harvesting and you need to be counting or if you need to be having a conversation about is this bunch big enough and what's the time and then that's not appropriate. So I think it's a will probably be an ever evolving conversation, but it was just not something that had occurred to me at all a few years ago as having to having to think about or manage. I I really think that's important. And I remember reading in an employee manual back when we were trying to put ours together for our farm. Uh, this, so this would have been, you know, 15, 15 years ago. But you know, a biodynamic farmer basically saying, we don't do, we don't do music on the farm uh, because we need to be paying attention to each other and to what's happening out in the fields. And it's not something that I necessarily agreed with, but it was an interesting perspective to, to have that sort of, well, I guess just awareness again of, of what you, what you gain and what you lose, even if you are listening to the farmer to farmer podcast. (laughs) Right. And I think that is what I ultimately appreciated about the conversation we were able to have And, you know, I really appreciate my crew for this is they showed up and they expressed what their concerns were. And we were able to, you know, people weren't defensive. People weren't um, people were constructive and really heard when our farm manager said, when I got into organic farming, it was because this was who I wanted to be in the world. I wanted to be quiet and thoughtful and observational. And I, you know, she just expressed her concerns about how being plugged in limited your limited people's ability to do that. And that was really heard. And I think that changed some perspective. So anyway, I, I hope I'm sure, you know, we will, that won't be our only issue we will ever have. And I just appreciated that we were able to have such a constructive conversation. And that's, yeah, that's my goal, I guess, for building a crew and a team who is willing to engage like that in conversations that can be challenging. This is a funny little area to squirrel into, but I think it it points to so many other things. I'm curious how you what was the outcome of that conversation? Did you end up with a, a set of, a set of guidelines, you know, sort of saying like, well, it'd be nice if we had this sort of awareness around this, or was it, did you end up with like a hard set of rules that went in the employee manual? Well, you're making me feel like maybe we should have written some rules. (laughs) I'm actually wondering if maybe not writing the rules, you know, I'm kind of curious how that, I mean, I would tend to, I would tend to write the rules. That's just the kind of guy I am. But, but I think, I mean, I wonder if that's a place where combating that tendency and saying, you know, really it's much more about a culture and guidelines issue rather than, rather than about a black and white rules issue. So where we ended up was with a conversation about what was appropriate and what wasn't. And there seemed to be good agreement about what people thought was appropriate and what wasn't. And that crew is still with us lot of them over the winter and into next summer. So that understanding feels like it still stands. I think probably what we should do is write some of that up for the handbook so that people who are coming into the crew have the expectations set for them early on about what we want and how we want to do it. But I don't, 
I don't know. There's times when strict rules do feel really appropriate. Nobody is allowed to run the BCS with their Tevas on. They have to have closed toe shoes. That feels to me like a rule that nobody can break. There's no smoking on the farm. That feels to me like an important rule. This feels to me like an issue that will probably continue to evolve and where our goals and aspirations for who we want to be on the farm are more important than sort of this is when you can be plugged in and this is when you can't. I think that's a great note for us to stop here and take a break and get a word from our sponsors. And then we'll be right back for more with, with Laura Masterson from 47th Avenue Farm in Portland, Oregon. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments you've made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost. That means you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two basic parts, the compost and everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very, very intentional about the inputs they put into their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. The same goes for the everything else part. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont compost potting soils has a purpose, whether it's the chips of ocean blue granite or the kelp that provides micronutrients and a little smell of the ocean. Fully composted compost, top quality ingredients, and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production, combined with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming is, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmers Web, small business software for farmers. Farmers use Farmers Web to streamline work with wholesale buyers, such as restaurants, schools, corporate kitchens, distributors, and retail stores, making working with each buyer easier and increasing the number of buyers your farm business can work with. Taking orders by phone or email, collating them into spreadsheets, and entering them into an accounting program for invoicing takes time that you could be spending on farming and sales or anything other than office work. With Farmers Web, your wholesale customers can place their orders online or you can take their orders over the phone, by email, or in person and enter them in yourself. You can define different payment terms for different buyers, give select buyers special pricing, and generate pick lists, packing slips, and PDF catalogs for your customers. You can keep track of payments that you receive by check or buyer payments by credit card go right into your bank account. Farmers Web can even help facilitate arrangements with third-party logistics providers or help you coordinate deliveries with neighboring farms. A flat monthly fee means that no amount of orders or number of buyers affects your costs, and you can pause, cancel, or switch plans types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. Farmers Web is available to farms, food hubs, and local food artisans nationwide. FarmersWeb.com. All right, and we're back with Laura Masterson from 47th Avenue Farm. And Laura and I were talking just a little bit over the break about this whole how things are structured on her farm with, with her as kind of the farm owner and then a, a farm manager at Lake Oswego and then, and then a crew underneath and Laura wanted to reflect just a little bit more on that. I think the main thing that I wanted to express was just some appreciation for our farm manager, Jenny London, who has worked with us for the last two years. And what a great job she did creating an environment where that kind of conversation could take place, where we really were able to say to people, hey, this is something where we have some concerns and 
people felt heard when they expressed their concerns and didn't get defensive. And she was really responsible for building building the team that's there now. And I can take credit maybe for setting the intention, but she was the one who was there on a day-to-day basis, really building people's skills, but also building people's trust so that when some of those harder conversations came up, they were actually easy because that had been established already and they and people felt like it was a safe and constructive environment that they could engage in hard conversations and we got to some great outcomes you know you see this if if you if you work around human resources stuff enough, you see a lot of statements about safe and constructive environments, and you see a lot of places where that's complete and utter bullshit. Um, despite what's written in the in the employee manual, I'm I'm curious if you have any insights about what Jenny's done to make that the case. I think there's a couple of things that happen. There's a way that she shows up that makes everyone know without a doubt that she cares deeply about them as a person, and there's a lot to get done, and she doesn't shy away from that. So I think some of it is just balancing those two things, and she just did it in a really amazing way. I feel like oftentimes I land on the side of, we have all this to get done, and I am not as good as, um, or I have learned a lot from her about also showing up for the people. And that doesn't take any more time. It's like I was saying earlier, it is about an attitude and an approach and being really open and compassionate and not feeling like that somehow compromises your ability to harvest fast or hoe quickly or get the tractor work done. And I don't know why that dichotomy exists sometimes, because at this point it feels like a false dichotomy to me, but I would say probably five or certainly 10 years ago, it it felt real to me. Like either I could do one, I could be really focused on efficiency, or I could be really compassionate with the people. And I think what Jenny does such a great job of, and um, the intention that I have for the farm is to really be both of those things. We've all seen or worked in places where they talk about that and they don't actually do it. There's a bunch of political we're not even political, but just gossiping and backbiting and defensiveness. And that is so unconstructive. I think I read in a Harvard Business Review article one time that that was the largest source of uh, loss of productivity in the workplace today. And I, I would believe it. And so how do we create a place that is not that? where people really want to engage fully and constructively and they want to bust it out. So those are my aspirations for the farm. And I really appreciate what I have learned from Jenny about how to do that better. It might feel like a little bit of a, of a forced pivot here, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to tie this all together and say, let's, let's pivot here and talk about some of the things that you've done on your farm and approaches that you've taken that aren't just about the production of vegetables. You've, You've done some interesting work, I think, with insectary hedgerows. Um, and you actually come out of, you came out of Reed College with a background in microbiology. 
I do have a degree from Reed College in cellular biology, and I think that is not exactly put to use right now, but one of the things it did provide for me was I am not afraid of science. I am not afraid of digging in. I didn't do a lot of, I didn't take a lot of plant classes at Reed College, but I don't um, mind reading abstracts or really digging into the scientific research. Latin doesn't scare me. Calling the researchers at OSU doesn't scare me. So in that way, I really appreciate my education. Um, in hindsight, I wish I'd taken a lot more plant classes because that would have really helped me out. But I didn't know when I was in college that I wanted to be a farmer. I was headed for vet school, uh, I thought. So, but who knows? Um, things change. And I discovered, I guess, my senior year that I really loved plants and loved gardening. And then I was off to the races. Obviously, a place like Reed College, I mean, I think the the organic is a little bit of a default setting there. You wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to go off and be a spray and pray chemical farmer um, out of that. But it seems like something that you've really taken some ecological stewardship in mind with your farm as a whole instead of just being a, a production spot. But I know you've done some work with these insectary hedgerows. Right. A few years ago, we planted our first insectary hedgerow, which I am super excited about. I think I had been watching for several several years what different farms and different people had been doing and really struggling with some of the management challenges associated with having beneficial insects and uh, having hedgerows on the farm. So, Sometimes when they're planted really close to fences, how do you manage that? How do you keep the blackberries out of the fence row? And um, how do you how do you find the time to weed the hedgerows? And some places that I was watching, especially where they had lots of volunteers or a nonprofit involved, they would do crazy amounts of mulching, but I didn't have any materials for mulch and I didn't have any volunteers. And so I spent a few years sort of just watching and learning. And I think one of my take homes is how do I set up the hedgerow in a way that uses the equipment that I have and really is more like farming? So what we did was a single row of plants parallel to, but about eight feet away from the fence so that we could take the mower on the tractor right up next to the fence and try and keep the weeds down that way. We're about three years into our hedgerow and we have been maintaining right up to the plants with the BCS actually. So that's just like we do out in the field. And it's just something that the field crew does in addition to weeding or BCSing all the rest of the beds, they just go around and do the hedgerow as well. And that has really minimized the amount of quote unquote extra work that we have to do and it's kept it pretty darn clean. So I'm excited about that. I think in the next few years, it'll be interesting to see as the plants get bigger, we won't be able to get the BCS right up next to them because what we've planted are native shrubs in the six to 12 foot range, something like that. I didn't want to shade any of the farm fields, but I wanted the plants as big as they possibly could be in order to maximize the benefits to the beneficials. And 
I think what we'll do is probably depend mostly on mowing and maybe a little bit of weed whacking to keep the weeds down. I think we'll probably plant some dwarf clovers underneath the hedgerow and see if that can smother out some of the weeds. But it's really, for me, it was about how do I make this as easy as possible within the system we already have. So the other thing I would say about it is it's not going to need irrigation forever, but obviously newly planted stuff does need irrigation. So I laid it out in a way that it was easy to reach with the irrigation setup that we already have for the field. So that was the other thing that was helpful because I've seen people struggle when it's hard to get irrigation to stuff, you just don't necessarily do it in the middle of the season because there's too much else to do. So those are some of the things that I feel like were management problems in other situations that I feel like we were able to solve in our system. So I hope in Another three or four years, we'll have big, beautiful plants. A lot of them are just starting to bloom now, which is exciting because we don't have much habitat on the farm this time of year for the beneficial insects. And now is when we need it to build up the population. So, um, yeah, I'm excited uh, about how that's going to progress. And hopefully it will be a, a part of the farm that just keeps improving over time. But certainly something of a long-term investment with those because you said you're not really seeing results from those yet. No, we're not seeing results for them yet. I do feel like it's a great long-term investment. We need more habitat on the farm and this seemed like an easy way to do it. Those those plants that we chose are ones that are blooming in windows where things are usually scarce this time of year just generally in the landscape. So I, and it's beautiful. I think part of, for me, I don't know. I don't know if if I was going to put a percentage on it, it probably wouldn't be able to be very big, but I feel like there's some things I want to do on the farm just because they're beautiful. (laughs) And this is one of them. In addition to providing all this amazing beneficial insect habitat, songbird habitat, it's also just blooming and so beautiful right now. And of course, that's you're in the Pacific Northwest, so things are actually blooming here in Wisconsin. (laughs) Not so much. Uh, So remind me how many acres you're actually growing in vegetables right now. We have about 20 acres in vegetables currently. That number is always a little challenging. We have 50 acres total that we manage, and some of that is in cover crops, some of it's in pasture, some of it's in bare fallow, and some of it is in vegetable production. So we are using the BCS in the more intensive vegetable production parts of it. We're doing a lot of tractor cultivation. I have two... Uh, Alice Chalmer G tractors, both of them electric conversions, which I love. I don't know if you've ever gotten to ride a or use a electric G, but they're so quiet and so nice. Um, so I'm a big fan of those. I also have a little cub, which we do a lot of cultivation on. One of the things I feel like I've been able to do really well at Grand Island since we've been there is weed control. You've talked about this. I know I'm not the only farmer that this has ever happened to, but I feel like I spent the first few years of my farming career growing, learning how to grow weeds really well. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And 
that was a big goal of mine when I got to Grand Island was how do I get this under control? I know it's possible. I know we can do it. I know we can get it dialed in. And I'm really proud of our weed control down there. We do a lot of cover cropping. We do a lot of bare fallow. And then we have some just some easy, simple strategies with the mostly with cultivation to keep the weeds under control. Um, I think it's an interesting concept. People are often and I used to be really resistant to taking land out of production. And I know small farmers who say, well, it's easy once you're bigger then you can afford to take land out of production. My attitude is either I'm taking 20 or 30 or 50% out of production or I'm not. And it doesn't matter if I'm one acre or a hundred acres, I'm still cutting into my quote unquote income by doing that. But what I've seen is that when I am able to do that, the return on investment is exponential. The amount of time it takes us to weed in the places where we've let weeds get out of control, that's our profit margin basically, you know, diminished, if not extinguished. Spending a little bit of time in the season before doing a bare fallow, spending a little bit of money on cover crop, those investments pay for themselves in spades. And we are not trying to control the weeds so much in season we're trying to prevent them and that's been a huge shift for me in the last five or six years and i think it's one of the biggest changes uh that i've been able to make on the farm and the re- i don't know the return on investment has just been amazing and do you feel like that's something that you have been able to make because you have the extra space or is that something that you could have done without having the expanse of land that you have now? Well, if I knew then what I know now, I easily could have done it when we started at the Lusher Farm property in Lake Oswego. But you don't know what you don't know. So I didn't have the technical knowledge. I didn't have the mechanical knowledge to get all those systems in place. And maybe I had to learn the hard way, just how expensive it is to have a seed bank like that in your vegetable crops um, and really feel (laughs) motivated (laughs) to do it a little bit differently. Uh, So I, I, in hindsight, it feels to me like something that anyone can do at any scale. I think scale is a misnomer. It's either 10% of your property and your income offline for a certain period of time, or it's not. And um, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't feel like I could say it strongly enough. Managing weeds has changed my life. I'd like you to talk more about that. I mean, in particular, because it goes along with something that I'm always saying, you know, out out on the out on the circuit. But right. You know, so so tell us more about how how managing weeds successfully has changed your life. Well, one of the things that I have worked hard on on our farm is record keeping, and we are getting ever closer to having accurate enterprise budgets for our different crops, and. I really appreciated the work that you did when you came to Oregon to help us out in that department. We have a great 
um, collaboration between Oregon State University and Oregon Tilth that is helping to find some best practices around enterprise budgeting and record keeping for that, because as we all know, uh, small diversified operations, the record keeping challenges are tremendous. So as I keep more records and as I am able to use those records, it is just so easy to see that weeding once a week in a crop uh, all but completely erodes the profit margin. And what I see at Grand Island is we're weeding maybe once a month, and it's so much faster because there isn't a carpet of pigweed. There's just a few stray weeds. And when you put pencil to paper, the difference between all that weeding and hardly any weeding is the profit margin for the crop. I mean, all other things being equal, which, of course, they're not always. But, but it does make a huge difference, and I think the the biggest thing that I observed was how much more pleasant and, and efficient the harvest was when we'd done a good job of weed control. <laughs> yes, there's also that. I mean, harvesting a regula in a weedy field is just not even worth it. There have been plenty of times in my life, I'm not happy to admit it, but I have just tilled in fields that we have spent all that time prepping, seeding, weeding, irrigating, and then we can't harvest because they're just covered with pig, with pigweed or they're full of crab crabgrass or so I think that that has been a very hard lesson for me to learn. I in hindsight I just can't imagine why I didn't learn it sooner, but I'm happy to be mostly on the other side of it and I I just can't say strongly enough how important that is. I think there's an attitude that that sort of feels like every square inch is so important to profitability. There is a way to do prevention that is much more effective than just trying to weed your way out of that deep, dark hole. So could you walk us through how you do that prevention on your farm? Sure. I think one of the things that I do that's maybe a little different than some other folks is we really think about cover cropping uh, starting the year before. So we use three or four different types of cover crops, depending on what the cash crop is going to be the following year. And I, I learned this, I think, originally from the Nordells. They are out in Pennsylvania and they do an amazing job with this. I was originally interested in their farm system because they farm with horses, but they're, they do an incredible job with weed prevention. And I think they sort of planted the seed for me of how can I do this better? Um, so one of the things that I think about is if I'm going to have an early spring cash crop, what is the cover crop that's going to happen before that? And for us out here in the Pacific Northwest in the Willamette Valley, Sudan grass is my favorite cover crop to use for the earliest planted spring crops. It grows to, I don't know, eight or 10 feet tall, provides an insane amount of biomass, hardly requires any water, and then winter kills. And this time of year, I walk out there and it just looks like someone has laid down a beautiful straw mulch on the field. It's alleliopathic, so it inhibits, doesn't totally prevent, but it inhibits a lot of weed seed germination over the course of the winter. We have 
chickweed, we have red dead nettle, we have a lot of stuff that is starting to germinate this time of year. And in those fields where we had good stands of Sudan grass, we have far less germination of those uh, weeds. So I would start as soon as we could work the fields in April or May, and I would mow down whatever was there, uh, rip it, go over it with a Perfecta three-in-one, uh, which is basically some S-tines and then a spike tooth and then a roller. And I would just, depending on the weed pressure that we're seeing, I would just keep using that Perfecta basically until it was time to plant the Sudan grass. And then the Sudan would go in depending on, you know, if the weed pressure is real is high in the field, then I would probably use the Perfecta through June and maybe even into the first week in July. And then I'd plant the Sudan grass. If the weed pressure is relatively low, maybe I could get the Sudan in in June. So then that Sudan grass goes all the way through the summer. I might mow it because sometimes it'll set seed here if it's planted really early, but that just causes it to tiller and regrow. I might irrigate it once, but basically if it's pre-irrigated, it grows just fine. I don't quite know how, um, but on the soil moisture that we have here, which is not very much in the summertime, um, it grows huge, it winter kills, and then I am able to plant into it like I said, our earliest spring crops. So we'll often plant, I'll just, when we get a dry week in February or March, I will till it once. We can plant peas into it. I can rip through it and we can plant early potatoes into it. It's just a beautiful cover crop to use for those really early seeded crops. When I started farming, I was trying to seed some kind of small grain and legume at the end of the season as tomatoes or winter squash or whatever was basically just finishing for us that's in October it's way too late to be planting cover crop and then they don't really hold onto the soil and then they don't really grow much and then you're trying to till them in in March and then they keep growing and I just um, am so happy to be out of out of that sort of pattern I think there's a place for small grains and legumes we use them before our very latest crops. So after doing a bare fallow in the summertime, we'll seed some kind of rye or triticale with a winter pea or common vetch. That'll go through the winter. We'll let it really grow so that we get the biomass off of it. We might even get some bloom off the legume. And then there's time to mow it. I have a flail, uh, which I'm very fond of. And then usually after I flail a couple of times, then we'll start tilling, maybe disking, rip it, do the perfecta. We have time for all that organic matter to break down before we go in and we're planting in the middle of June, July, because we do a lot of winter crops and fall uh, brassicas and things, we are planting, you know, all the way through September, basically. So that later window is when I think the small grains and legumes are really appropriate and do a great job, but they're, they're terrible for the early season crops. And I don't, I don't know why I had it in my head or where I learned that that was 
how cover cropping worked, but I'm very glad to be out of that paradigm and really on to thinking about almost two seasons ahead. What are we going to do next in this field and how do we really prepare for it? That's great. And I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your horses. I have a pair of beautiful Belgian mares named Patty and Bonnie, who I love dearly. And I, I feel like that's one of my uh, great joys and challenging challenges is figuring out how to make the time to drive the horses and really integrate them into the farm system. I, I would say there's still a lot of potential there, but it's something that I love to do. And uh, hopefully as we get down there more, I will get to do even more, of, even more of it. So, and I really appreciate, we have a great kind of community of horse farmers here in Oregon. And um, I love about it, you know, maybe the, like some of the other old tractor equipment, it's really not just about doing it the way people used to do it, but really thinking about how this old equipment and this old style of working is appropriate in our new system and how to integrate it and move it forward and make the, make the whole system work. So I'm not giving up my tractor anytime soon, but I do love my horses. But they're really they're really just a part of the operation rather than a I would say a feature of the operation for you. They're they're do do you have a particular do you have particular kinds of work that you like to do with the horses? Mostly what I have done with them the last few years is the open field work. So the bear fallow, in addition to using the perfecta on the tractor, I love to get out there with the horses, with the disc and the harrow. So depending on what kind of weeds we have, if they're not deeply rooted, if they're just, um, you know, small thread stage annual weeds, then then the horses with the big harrow works great. And uh, disking with them is a lot of fun. So I would say that that bigger open field work is where we've mostly um, use them. Oh, actually, and seeding the cover crop too. That's the, that's the other thing that we've done a lot of. I have a little grain drill and, um, yeah, we've drilled acres and acres of cover crop. So that's kind of fun too. Nice. All right. So with that, let's turn to the lightning round and I'm going to start with asking you, what's your favorite tool on the farm, Laura? Well, I think I'm going to say that my favorite tool is self-observation. And I maybe that sounds a little funny, but, you know, part of what we talked about is how to be a better manager. And for me, a huge part of that is observing how I'm managing situations, whether I'm micromanaging, whether I'm delegating too much, am I avoiding conflict, am I you know, who, who am I in the world with the crew? What results am I getting and how do I do this better? So that, that's, that's been really big for me. And your favorite crop to grow? I love purple sprouting broccoli. That's probably my favorite thing this time of year. I know that not everybody across the country is able to grow it, but for us, it's this amazing phenomenon that happens starting in February when everything is dark and cold and these beautiful heads of 
uh, sprouting broccoli start po popping up. They're vibrant and purple, and people are so excited at the market and CSA. And so, um, yeah, that's one of my faves. When when do you actually plant the sprouting broccoli? Well, uh, <clears throat> so we plant all of our fall and winter brassicas in July and August. So the sprouting broccoli goes in sometime between August 1st and August 15th. And it's a long haul. Those overwintering broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, um, they're in the ground for a long time. They take a lot of tending and managing and hopefully we don't have a freak freeze that kills them all. That doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's very sad. But we're lucky here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we have a really relatively mild maritime climate that allows us to do a lot of crops in the winter, including a bunch of different kinds of overwintering brassicas. Right. And what was the last purely recreational activity you did? And listening to Audible on the way to work doesn't count. <laughs> oh, let's see. This shouldn't be so hard to think of. I'm about to go on vacation for a week with some college friends of mine, and I'm super excited about that. So, <clears throat> uh, I'll let you get away with that. That, that wasn't exactly the last purely <laughs> recreational activity you did. We'll go with that. On and and what are you going to be doing differently on the farm this year? That is a great question. One of the things I'm really excited about this year is getting our soil fertility better dialed in. I think in part because I farmed so many different places for so long early on, we sort of were able to uh, use a lot of residual fertility and then we were moving on. And so I didn't have to necessarily learn how to stay in one place for a long time and manage the inputs, uh, maintain really high fertility do a good job reading the soil types and, or, or excuse me, the soil tests. And it's been actually pretty fun this year to dig into it a little bit more. And um, I've been reading The Ideal Soil. I don't know if you know that little book. No, I'm not familiar with that one. There's also another good book out that's more for gardeners, but I think it's a fun read and it has some great soil worksheets in it called The Intelligent Gardener. Um, but both of those have really uh, given me some new insights and just made me very excited about how to do fertility management better and more sustainably. And that'll be interesting to see. We've had some crops where, as I look back, um, I kind of had a sense that yields were maybe declining a bit, but when I finally dug into the numbers this year, I could really see it. And so I'm excited about bringing those numbers back up again um, if we can get the fertility to where it really needs to be. Great. And, and when you say you're working on dialing in the fertility, I mean, obviously some of that has to do with understanding the the whole soil fertility scene a little bit better and you mentioned a couple of resources for that but what what's the rest of the strategy for doing this you know you read some books are you are you working with a consultant are you taking the information in those books and creating some spreadsheets and figuring out 
what blend you need to put on or so i felt like i really needed to get my own skills better in the in the fertility management arena and so i did a bunch of reading this winter and that led me to talking to some consultants and really working with them to devise a blend that would work for us our soils are missing some potassium uh, we always need nitrogen because we have so much leaching uh, over the winter and we're also low in boron and sulfur so I think what do those things do for the plants as I read the soil tests and realized that we were deficient, especially in some fields, it was easy to kind of see in hindsight, like, oh, that's why the beets have been having this problem, or that's why we maybe had that disease or that yield reduction. And I think just tying that all together is exciting to me to think that we could be really solving some of these problems better. And I, I'm also, I mean, it's a little bit expensive, but I sent some tests off to a couple different labs because I think that is also interesting too to hear through the grapevine that folks are not always getting the same results from different labs so that'll be an interesting little experiment but I just I just feel like there's the opportunity to always be doing this better it's maybe one of the things I love about farming and that what keeps me going is that every time you kind of solve one problem there's always the next puzzle that is presented ahead of you and there's always more sort of intellectual challenge how do I figure out the soil fertility and what blend and can I get the timing right for the application? And does it need extra nitrogen? Do I do side dressing? Do I do foliar? What if I mix up the cover crops? Um, how do I do that better? Can I do a cover crop blend? Can I, instead of just having single species cover crops, can I introduce some bloom to that? Can I get more organic matter? So there's no sort of end to the complexity of farming. And for me, that's part of what is so exciting and inspiring about it is working with the complexity, working with nature and growing this amazing food. I love that. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think what I would tell my beginning farmer self is that you don't have to be an expert on everything. Just get out there and ask some questions and it's okay to not have all the answers. And that is something that I think slowed me down sometimes is, um, you know, thinking that in addition to knowing, having to know all the varieties, I also had to be a tractor mechanic. And I also, well, like I was saying, had to know the soil fertility. And I feel like uh, as I have gotten older, I have gotten much more comfortable saying, I have no idea. Here are my questions. I have more questions than answers and really asking for help. And that is what moves us all forward. And I think uh, some of my, some of the things I didn't get done maybe as a younger farmer were just because I was afraid to ask for help. So I am, I am no longer, <laughs> no longer afraid to admit my ignorance. Even after 20 years of farming, there will always be lots of things that I don't know the answers to, but happily, especially here, we have this amazing community of farmers and researchers and um, it's, yeah. Uh, somewhere in the community is always the answer to the question I have. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Laura, for being part of the podcast today. Happy to be here, Chris. Thanks for doing it. 
All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 59 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Masterson. That's M-A-S-T-E-R-S-O-N. In addition to the podcast, I do publish a newsletter over the email. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to pop on over to iTunes, leave us a review. You can also follow us on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork. When you comment in the show notes, leave a review, or share an episode on social media, it demonstrates to our sponsors in a tangible way that we have an engaged audience. That makes a huge difference in our ability to continue to put on the show and reach a growing base of listeners. One more thing, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the contact form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.